0: To the Developmentor Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. As always, I'm focused on helping our listeners explore all the different career paths in technology, ranging from engineering to investing, from technical writing to technical leadership. Today's guest, I'm pretty sure, falls into all of those categories. Having worked in tech for a number of years, she's worked her way up from an engineer through to a CTO, VP of engineering. She's also written books. And I'm pretty sure she actually has done some investment as well. So, uh, great to have on the show Camille Fournier. Camille, welcome.
1: Thanks, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Great, so I've I've given a little bit of a teaser on your background, but why don't we just start off with you you giving us the the lay of the land in terms of your background, your career, maybe uh, your education, all of those good things.
1: Sure, so, uh, so I have perhaps one of the more traditional backgrounds for coming into tech that you might feature on this show. Um, I went to, uh, I had a computer science degree. I went to Carnegie Mellon for my undergraduate degree. Um, I also actually have a master's degree in computer science from the University of Wisconsin. Um, so I, you know, I studied CS. Uh, my first job was at Microsoft, uh, and I worked on the common language runtime for dot net. Uh, I actually, this will, this will this will show my age to those who are familiar with it. I worked on the Itanium uh, uh, port of that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was a, a an interesting uh, project. Um, and then I, I went to graduate school, so that was in between undergrad and graduate school. And then after graduate school, I actually went to, to work at Goldman Sachs. Um, and at Goldman, I worked in a def- bunch of different roles. Goldman was sort of uh, an interesting transition for me because after graduate school, I was actually not sure I wanted to stay in tech. Um, I had, been, I, you know, I, I had these great degrees and I had worked a lot of internships and I'd worked at Microsoft and I, you know, had intended on going to graduate school to get a PhD and I just felt like, you know, I just didn't quite fit in in tech. I was really, I felt sort of was struggling with what is my job actually going to be like? Am I really going to enjoy this? Like, I felt like I was still good at tech. I was, you know, a decent, uh, you know, systems thinker and programmer and whatever, but I hadn't really felt like I had found the kind of success I expected, um, at up to that point. And so when I moved to New York to work for Goldman, I actually, uh, took that job because I wanted to live in New York city and not because of Mm -hmm. much of anything about Goldman Sachs in particular. Like, the, the job that I worked in, the team I was working in, the people seemed nice, and it seemed like it could be interesting, but you know I kind of had pivoted away from optimizing for like the hardest core tech job that I could find um, in favor of, like well, I want to live in New York, and I'm, I don't really know what I want to do with my life anymore, so let's just take this job that pays me well enough to live in New York, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, and that actually worked out really, really well for me. That was probably, that's actually a piece of advice that I give to a lot of uh, young people, um, is that it's, you know, it's easy to have this idea of what you should do based on, you know, your background, based on what people around you say is cool. You know, uh, I, I mean a lot of people from Stanford and a lot of people from Stanford think that they absolutely should start a company. That, like, that is the only, you know, really, like, legitimate career path is to be a founder. And the reality is, like, most people will not be successful founders, would not enjoy that job. It's a very hard thing to do. And, you know, for me, coming out of Carnegie Mellon, coming out of this, this you know, uh, master's degree, I felt like I should be doing, like, really low-level systems programming. That was what I, I thought I was really interested in. And, you know, so I took a job in Java, you know, at an investment bank. Hmm. Um, and I, actually, that saved tech for me. That saved my career oh, wow. in tech. Um, because it turns out that the team I was working on was working on risk analysis systems. And the problem was actually big. Um, we had a lot of data that we wanted to allow the analysts to access and sort of do what I, what I kind of refer to as like interactive data mining on really quickly. Um, and we were pushing the limits of the JVM in terms of how much memory we were actually using in these systems. And so I was both working on really interesting technical problems, um, as well as working with nice people um, working in, an, in a proto-Agile environment. So this was kind of like the very early days of the, of the Agile movement before it had kind of been turned into what it is now, which is sort of like a lot of consultants and like, yeah. you know, process and And It was much more just like, hey, we write tests for our code. We like partner together to write code sometimes. We do this pair programming thing, not all the time, but sometimes. Um, and we actually release our code frequently, which was the thing that I discovered I was really missing When I was working at Microsoft, I was working at Microsoft on a project that like was part of like a multi-year initiative that, you know, your code isn't really seeing like the light of day for years and years and years. Um, And whereas I come into this environment and all of a sudden like we're releasing this code to our end users every two weeks, which was at the time really, really fast. And so I like that was kind of that kind of turned me around in tech because it turns out that like, actually I'm really, I am a good programmer and I am a good, you know, engineer. And being able to see the, the fruits of my labor quickly and iteratively um, meant that I learned really quickly and I was able to like get a lot done. I learned a lot about distributed systems in the process because part of the work that we had to do was actually take this giant, you know, single node thing that we had created and turn it into a distributed system, essentially a bespoke distributed system. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I so I did that for a number of years. Um, I worked on that. I worked on the Apache Zookeeper Project as part of another thing that I did at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I kind of, like, really spent a while becoming a really solid engineer. And, you know, I, I was a tech lead, and I did a tiny bit of management there. Um, but I kind of hit this point about six and a half years in at Goldman where I realized that Um, there was kind of a limit to my ability to have impact given the size of the company and the kinds of roles I was in. And I wanted to do something completely different. Um, So I decided that I was going to leave my very stable, big company job and go find a startup. Because this was kind of, you know, 2010, 2011, when, when the startup scene was sort of coming back After, after, you know, one of its many sort of die downs. Um, (laughs) And, and, and there, you know, a bunch of my friends had started like leaving companies like Google to work at startups and there was stuff going on. There's stuff going on in New York city that you could do. I didn't have to like move to California to do this. So I decided that I both wanted to go do a startup and experience what that life was like. And also that I wanted to see if I could maybe, you know, get into more of a leadership role, become, you know, at the time, sort of management and leadership were kind of co-joined in my mind, um, but, you know, become a, get, get in a role where I was, you know, managing some people and leading some stuff. And so I took a job at a company called Rent the Runway, um, which is a women's fashion company that rents designer dresses and accessories. Um, and that turned out to be one of the hardest things I ever did in my career, but also by far the best thing I ever did for my career, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, I joined them, as a director of engineering, I ended up basically very quickly getting promoted to be the head of architecture, and then VP of engineering, SVP of engineering, and CTO. Um, and so, you know, kind of got the chance to join this team that was early stage, but not like super, super early stage, um, and grow it from, you know, around 15 people to about 65 when I left. And that, that really just taught me so much about leadership and management and, you know, working at startups and, and creating cultures and, and all of that. Uh, so (laughs) this is a long career background. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up in, you know, leadership management, uh, circles. Um, when I left that job, I, I intentionally said, all right, I'm going to reset. I don't know what I want to do next. Um, you know, I was exhausted, frankly, from working at a startup for four years because startups are exhausting and I didn't want to just like jump into a new job immediately. I had the ability to take some time off. So I ended up taking off about a year and a half and I spent a lot of time doing a bunch of different things. But most importantly, I wrote the book, The Manager's Path, um, about the things that I learned working at Rent the Runway and and sort of helping people get a sense for what the progression through various stages of management might look like. Um, I also, you know, frankly, uh, I tried to do my own startup a couple of times and never really got any traction with any, just couldn't quite get through to like an idea that I felt passionate about. Um, and so long story short, at the end of all of that, um, I then, I am now the, uh, head of platform engineering at a, a financial company called Two Sigma, which is a hedge fund here in New York city. Um, and I am actually really enjoying it. So I'm getting to do kind of the two sides of things that I'm really good at, which is managing a very large team and being a leader of engineering at this company, but also working in Um, you know, building out platform distributed systems infrastructure, which is something that I spent a lot of time in my technical side of my career working on. Wow.
0: That's wow. There's there's so many things in there to, to delve into. I think, Uh, I, I guess I had it right in the fact that you've, you've done the engineering role. You've done the tech lead role. You've, you've done not just engineering leadership, but actually executive leadership. You've written books Uh, And all throughout it, it, I I get the sense too that there's this constant desire to stay technical. And and I want to come back to the book here a little bit. But one of the things in the book that that struck me as I was reading it is uh, you emphasize this notion of technical management. And and I think when people hear, oh, I'm going to be an engineering manager, all they hear is the manager part. And, And you kind of go out of your way to emphasize that you still need to be technical. So how how does that work for you? Like, what do you do? What are some of your habits uh, that help you both manage people and be technical?
1: I mean, it's it's hard. Um, I think like the first like the first thing is I spent a long time being technical before I ever went into management, and that's uh, that's a really big emphasized point. I- Um, that, you know, I really emphasize technical, uh, staying technical until you feel extremely confident in your technical instincts and technical abilities, um, is important. And that takes time. Like I, I you know, I kind of liken it to, you know, achieving mastery, which mm-hmm. for most people, you know, it's 10,000 hours is like kind of the Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you know, yes. saying about mastery, you know, 10 years, it depends on the person, but I think most people, if you're assuming you get some kind of training, some kind of a degree or, you know, whatever, you spend some number of years kind of training, and then you actually go into the workforce, um, you know, you're probably talking a good five at least years, just sort of writing code, building systems, building larger and larger systems, or, you know, experiencing different types of software development before you've really, like, gotten that that, that mastery of something. And it doesn't mean you're going to be the master of everything by, by any stretch of the imagination, but like really getting a lot of depth in something, whether it's like, you know, JavaScript front end engineering, or in my case, you know, a big distributed systems engineering, or, you know, whether it's like databases is your, is your area of mastery. There's a lot of different areas of mastery. It could be mobile engineering, iOS engineering. Right. Um, But, but I think like having that technical, Baseline is good because once you really go into management as certainly certainly at the level I'm at, and even like a couple of levels before that, you are not hands on it is you know it is you're probably not doing your job if you're spending any significant period of time writing code in your job um, when you're managing just like you get to a certain point in management and it just doesn't make any sense for you to be writing code as part of your job and frankly, like writing code outside of your job is, can be fun. And some people really like doing that. And I think if you enjoy doing that, that's great. But I think especially again, for people like myself, where we're talking about people that are really building big production systems, there is such a huge difference between I played around with like Docker and Kubernetes by myself and like spun up a little cluster and it was cool versus what you actually learn when you do that at scale, putting this stuff into production that you could almost get the wrong instincts. If you rely on the fact that you're still like playing with these little systems to be able to guide your technical judgment. Um, and so I really think like just setting a strong baseline is much more important than continuing to write code well into your management career. Um, but I think the other thing that you do to stay technical is just continue to like read, and talk to people. A lot of the ways that I continue to stay technical is I have a lot of friends who are very technical, who are still very hands on. And I spend a lot of time just like listening to them talk about the challenges of their jobs. I spend a lot of time, you know, reading blog posts, listening to talks, you know, kind of immersing yourself in the world of what are people thinking about on the technical side? What are they talking about? What are they learning? That also kind of that helps a lot in and keeping your instincts there, uh, and keeping sort of your knowledge fresh, right? So if you've got the instincts built over a career, you keep your knowledge fresh with new stuff coming in. Um, I think that's, that's a good mix for technical managers.
0: Yeah. And it, it, I find too, like, this, this is something I know I've struggled with in my career, right? And I, th- I think I, I have a pretty traditional path like you of doing the CS degree and the master's and, and it, letting go of those commit rights if you will of being able to change the code is one thing but then uh, a friend of mine said it to me really nice he's like grant do you want to see your ideas implemented or do you want to just be able to work on a single idea right like you 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 get to have this multiplier effect when you when you move into management right that you can now start to coordinate across people and and actually see potentially anyways ideas Come to fruition faster or or more complete than what you could ever do on your own,
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think that and I think it's you know also like you get to kind of nudge the direction of so many ideas, um, and that yeah that multiplier that that sort of leverage effect is much easier to have as a manager than it is as as an individual contributor, so you know I think yeah for for at least people like myself, that was definitely a big pull into management was. I wanted to be able to make more bigger things happen than I was ever going to be able to make happen by myself.
0: Yeah, and, and let's talk a little bit more about the manager's path. So, you, so you wrote this book. I mean, tell it go in a little bit deeper. Who, who's the audience? Who, who who listening to the show should pick it up? Like, what's the target audience? What What does somebody learn? Like, what are what are some of the key takeaways from the book? There.
1: So, the target audience was people sort of in the early stages of their engineering management career or people who were curious about engineering management. The sh- most shocking thing about this book that I have found is how many people recommend it to people who are very early in their engineering career in general, who have absolutely no intention of going into management. So it, it seems to have struck a chord beyond its mm. intended audience. Great. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that it, it's actually helpful for everyone to know... To to have the ability to understand what the job of management is sort of like, um, mm-hmm. even if you're not a manager, like it, it. I think that that it helps people understand like, oh yes, this is the things that my manager is probably worrying about right now, and so it helps them communicate better um, their ideas to their manager, and therefore kind of be more successful in their career. So that that has been sort of a surprising uh, side of this book. Um, but it was definitely written with managers in mind. It was written to help people who were thinking about management, curious about, you know, getting on the management track, the manager's path as it were, what, what the different stages of that might look like. um, and actually like answer really tangible questions about, okay, I'm, you know, I'm doing this thing. I, my team is not operating as well as I think it should. What are some things I can do to figure out how to make them more effective? Like, what are some things I should be looking at? What are some processes I might put in place? So I really wanted it to be also a very pragmatic resource for managers who were actually like having having issues, that having problems that they needed to solve. They needed ideas for how to approach. Um, because I just didn't see anything like that out in yeah. the market at that time. There didn't seem to be really any books that were really... Pragmatic. There's plenty of leadership books at a very high level, but very little that was really about the day-to-day work, um, particularly for engineering managers, where I think that technical side of the management is, you know, is something that you need specific resources for engineering and not just sort of generic being a good manager resources.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I think, you know, this... uh a lot of times, the the engineering manager is just the person who was the best engineer at that company. You see this a lot, I think, in, in startups as well, right? Is, and it's that's not necessarily the case. Or may, maybe the the manager is the person who had the you know was the most people uh, oriented in their their job as an engineer, and yet. So few companies. I know I've circulated it within our company, uh, my current company, and and same kind of feedback of like there's no guide for this, right? Because you've got to be able to to go back and forth, and and you've got to first be managed, right? But then you need often you need like a, a playbook on on how to do it, and it's not always obvious because you're you're dealing with very complex uh, problems that need to be solved. And just trying to figure that out can be can be really uh, hard to hard to dig into. And in fact, I, I think one of the things I really one of the one section in particular in the book that really struck with me is you have uh, kind of in the tech lead to manager transition. You talk a lot about the imagined life of a contributor and the imagined life of a manager. Right. Can you, yeah. can you go into that a little bit more? Cause I think, you know, especially for people who are listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm an engineer now, but I, maybe I want to be a manager, you know, perhaps, you know, dispel some of the myths, if you will, and and, and give some more insight as to why somebody would want to make that leap.
1: Yeah. So that was uh, that section was actually one of the hardest parts of the book to write because I wanted to be fair to both sides
0: um,
1: without without sugarcoating it. So, you know, uh, in the the imagined life of a manager side, a lot of people, I think, do imagine that as a manager, you get to tell people what to do. Um, And really, that is, in general, not true. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, most people... First of all, like managing engineers, remember that we are in like an engineering job crunch. There are more jobs for engineers right now than there are engineers. So engineers, are, you know, you have to kind of treat them nicely or they will quit. And as a manager, that's a big problem, right? When you're when people in your team quit or don't want to work for you, that is, you know, very difficult. A lot of managers spend a lot of their time on recruiting, retaining talent, right? That's a big part of your job. So... A lot of people, I think, imagine that. Well, I have good ideas, and you know, I know the direction that we should be going with whatever we're doing, right? I I know what we should be doing. Um, give me the management job, and I will get to tell everyone what to do, and therefore they will do the right things. They will they will operate better. And I will I will admit that I had a little bit of that when I went into management. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of people are like, oh, if somebody says that you sh- they should you should just never make them a manager because you know, they're, they're, they're sort of going at it from the wrong, for the wrong reasons. Look, I will admit, as a person who felt some of that, uh, I don't know that, I, I don't want to, like, say that you can never make someone a manager if that's part of their desire to go into management. Um, but you have to realize that that's actually not what you get to do as a manager. <laughs> you very occasionally can say no to something, Um, or very occasionally can sort of push things in a direction that you want it to go, but it's a lot more nudging and a lot more, um, and a lot more kind of, you know, trying to sell your ideas than you might expect as an individual contributor who's frustrated because you can't get things done because you can't sell your ideas. Um, now the, the flip side is that as a manager, you have a little bit more authority over what gets done, certainly not, not complete, you know, not telling people what to do, but you, you do have a little bit more authority over like, all or right, how we're going to staff projects, how we're going to, you know, what we're going to invest in. Um, but you have very little ownership of your own time. Mm-hmm. So there's you, you your time belongs to other people. You have to be, if you work in a company that has an office, you have to be in the office in fact, if you work in a company that has an HQ and you don't work in the HQ location, your career is probably your career prospects at that company as a manager are probably somewhat limited. Hmm. Um, not that you can't do things, but like I mean Google is famous for this right If you want to go beyond a certain level at google you 're going to have to spend some time in mountain view yeah it's just it's just really hard to go beyond a certain level where, you know, you're either on a plane all the time going out there, or you've just moved there for a few years. Um, So, so you, in some ways, being a manager has more freedom, but in a lot of ways, like your time does not belong to you anymore. Whereas the opposite is true, I think, for individual contributors. Individual contributors have so much more ownership over their own time that, that, you know, you are really not going to be pulled into a million meetings, hopefully, if your company is well run. If your company is not well run, that's a different story, right? But yeah. you know, you you may be pulled into meetings twenty or thirty percent of the time, whereas your manager is pulled into meetings eighty to ninety percent of their time, right? So it's it's a totally different um, trade off. So you have a lot more freedom to do things, you know, that do kind of what you want to do, um, especially at the more senior levels. Individual contributors are often given a lot more freedom to pick kind of what they want to focus on. Um, now, the, the, the downside to that is that the career path growth is often a lot is slower for individual contributors past a certain level. You right. need, you know, management is almost like a numbers game, right? Depending on how many people you have, you need a certain number of managers. Depending on how many managers you have, you need a certain number of managers of managers, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yep. Whereas, you know... Senior people, uh, senior individual contributors. It's definitely it's very different, right? Depending on the company and the complexity of the technology, um, you will need different numbers of you know staff or senior staff type level engineers. Um, And you know some companies just don't need very many of those at all. Some companies need a lot of them, right? So so it's you know part uh, partly about getting to the right company um, in building a career as an individual contributor, but it's also about like it takes a lot of time because you're being judged really on your individual efforts for the most part. And that means that, you know, it just takes a lot longer to show results and show that you've placed good bets and therefore delivered a lot, the same level of value. So, uh, so you know, those are kind of some of the trade-offs that I talk about there. And, and I really tried to be fair to both sides with that. Or, I, you know, like I think there are good and bad to both of those roles. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's definitely not a...
0: It's definitely but, not
1: a easy choice,
0: and, and I do think you were fair in there. And, I, and one of the things I loved in, in about it too is that you know, hey, it's all right if you don't want to. You know, you can try it and then take a step back, right? Like if you find you don't like the management route, like that's not the end of the world. Plenty of, especially these days, technology focused companies, right, are have very viable career paths for technical people. In fact, I think absolutely. One of the earlier guests I have on the show, uh, Drew Ferris, talked a lot about this. He's a, a big consulting firm, and, and he's married, made very conscious decisions to stay technical as he's grown in his uh, in his career there. So,
1: yeah, no, that's uh, I think that's absolutely true. There, there is a path for individual contributors, and. You know, if it doesn't exist at your company, you can find a company where it does.
0: Yeah, the roles like chief architect or architect roles, chief architect, and, and some companies even, and maybe this is a good transition to the next question, the CTO, uh, depending on the company, can take on a variety of roles. Uh, it's interesting just reading about the the way you've been a CTO and the way I've been one is like, I, I am not... I've run engineering, but then I actually took a step back and said, you know what, I want to focus on technology and being outward facing with customers. Whereas, you know, you've been, you've gone the, the, I'm going to run engineering and and I'm going to be the CTO at the head of the engineering org. Whereas other CTOs, uh, like you said in the book, it's kind of a nebulous term or a nebulously defined job, you know, so talk a little bit about like going up to that next layer above managers of managers, the VP of engineering CTO type roles, or perhaps even your current one of head of platform engineering.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very different. And it depends on the company that you're at or what those jobs look like. Um, But they, they tend to be, you know, at that level, you are an executive, I think, whether it's even, you know, VP of engineering, CTO, and my role, sort of head of platform. And so you really need to be able to think very broadly and strategically about the company um, and contribute, you know, whatever skills you happen to have, whatever ownership you have to have, contribute really at a company leadership level. Um, that is a little bit different than when you are kind of a manager, a manager, and you're, you're over a very specific uh, function or a sort of a smaller, yeah. you have a smaller scope. Um, in, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a woman who, like, you know, I like to take in new data and change my mind about things as I get more data. Um, you know, I'm a little bit softened on the executive who is a bad manager than I was, you know, five years ago. Um, There are a lot of executive roles, CTO, VP of engineering, not so much, hopefully. (laughs) But, you know, CTO and sort of VPs of various types of functions where the person who's the best person for that role may not be a great manager. They may be a really, you know, they may be an amazing uh, strategist. Uh, As you said, like, you know, when you took the CTO role, you stepped back from managing the team and you really focused on external customers, right? They may be the person who is just amazing at being the face of the technology for this company. Um, And, you know, and, and frankly, like there is some such a thing as executive presence. If you're selling to other CTOs or CIOs or, you know, executives at other companies, being able to, you know, meet them and have that kind of that executive presence and, you know, show that, yes, you are Mature, you know, your company is a company to be trusted. You know, you're at their wavelength is actually right. pretty freaking important. That's about you know, and that is not necessarily again the same skill that makes you really good at managing a team and then getting a key team to be really effective. Um, so true. So you know, I do think that there's I think there's different. I always tell people who say, you know, my career goal is really to be a CTO. I say, then go be a co-founder of a startup. Right. <laughs> the easiest way to be a CTO is to co-found a startup, period, end of story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, be be the technical co-founder, period, end of story. I like the way that's exactly right.
1: All right, like, you know, very few people are like myself who work their way up into a CTO position, even at startups. It's just not that common to work your way up. I mean, people obviously do it at big companies. They absolutely do. But, you know, you're talking, you are committing to, like, years and years of, Building a reputation, you know, building a portfolio of strategic work um, or, you know, building like building out to like a big enough role at a big company where a small company will say you, you know, you bring a bunch of cachet to us to hire you as our CTO. So that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, if your number one career goal is to be a CTO, go co-found a company. <laughs> yeah. uh, you may, you may, you know, be careful what you wish for, but, <laughs> but that's the fastest way to do it because it, it just is otherwise. It is a very different job than what you're going to learn, um, even growing as a as a manager uh, at at any kind of size company. So, so there is a lot. You know, there there is kind of a very a shift that not everybody will successfully be able to make. If they just try to work their way up into it,
0: right? Well, so let's then just uh, two questions. Then I want to get on to talking a little bit about what what you've got coming forward, how you how you see you know the future of these things. Uh, Explain a little bit about you know this title, head of platform engineering.
1: Sure. Um, So my current company is uh, is a very tech focused hedge fund, Um, and so the way that we have divided up engineering is is across the sort of core areas of the business. So we have, uh, trading engineering, for example, is all about our, you know, the, the platforms that actually trade with the markets. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I run platform engineering and really what we own is all of the common systems, whether they're developed in house or they're open source that we've customized or whatever, um, that all of the other areas of engineering use. So this is things actually includes like our developer tools, our SDLC um, tools. We have a gigantic Git-based monorepo, and there's a lot of bespoke work that goes into making a system like that work and scale. Um, We have uh, custom storage systems because, you know, finance is is one of those areas where you can either spend a lot, a lot of money getting, um, you know, Uh, proprietary off-the-shelf storage, um, or if you have the right people on the ground, you can actually build, it's actually one of the cases where it does make sense to build Mm -hmm. your own storage systems. Um, So we actually have proprietary storage systems, Um, the the teams that manage our compute infrastructure, so our Kubernetes infrastructure, um, as well as like our platform as a service work. Um, So, you know, we're kind of running all of those different kinds of systems and Developing them, scaling them, you know, it's a mix of, you know, pure software development, um, integrating, uh, working with open source, extending open source to work better in our environment, working with the cloud, you know, taking, taking you know, proprietary on-prem, on-premise workloads, making them work in the cloud, obviously doing a lot of work with security because security is very important in finance. Right. Um, so those are the, some of the many things that my organization does.
0: Wow. So somebody who who wants to be in the the mix of kind of all the moving parts would really love this role. They, 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 you've got distributed systems, you've got storage, you've got engineering lifecycle all built in there. Uh, and so yep. somebody who wants to kind of be at the heart of all things engineering would really uh, enjoy this type of role, which sounds like it's perfect fit for you because you, you know, you, once you, especially once you realize going all the way back that yes, you did indeed love tech. It, it sounds like you found uh, in fact, that, that role that fits really nicely there. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, just one final one, and this is perhaps a little shift on the career side of it, but you know, you've, you've written this book, you you mm-hmm. actually talked about some of the surprising things about it. Talk a little bit about the actual process of being, A technical author right you know there's uh, obviously a lot of careers in technology and actually writing books can be a a nice side thing for helping you make your career so kind of take a step back and talk about if you will the meta side of of the book
1: yeah I mean you know I had this idea well I had been blogging for a while um, so I do think that like if you're interested in becoming a technical author start blogging, (laughs) start writing now, right? Because the more, the more you write, the better you get at writing. Um, and you know, that's, that's a very valuable skill, no matter what you do in tech, even if you never want to write a book, being a good writer is really a valuable skill. Um, and so I had been blogging for a while and, um, I decided actually to do this thing that happens every November called national novel writing month. Um, it's sort of this like, weird, weird thing that a lot of people do where they spend the month of November and the, the goal is to write like three to 5,000 words a day. Um, and yeah. you know, ultimately end up with like maybe it's 3,000 words a day to end up with like a 90,000 word manuscript. And I think it's, you know, focused on people who actually want to do creative writing. But I decided that, you know, the, the year that I left Run the runway, I was like, ah, I'm just going to see if I can like, you know, throw out 90,000 words on engineering management and what yeah. that would look like. Um, and I did. And so that actually turned into sort of the draft, the very, very, very rough first draft of the book. Um, so the thing about, uh, I guess writing besides like, if you think you want to do it, my definite advice is start blogging. Um, is also, I am amazed at the number of people who do it while working a full-time job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I could have like written a full book while doing a full-time job. Uh, you know, I, there, there are like a lot of people co-write books with people. And I think I'm sure that makes it very different. And I have friends who write technical books, um, that are really about like, you know, showing you how to use various technologies. And they've just gotten so good at it that they can just like crank it out while working and it's no big deal. And I'm like in awe of those people. (laughs) Um, but for me, it was a lot of creative work. It was, you know, it was on and off over, over months was the process of writing. Um, but you know, it, when I was writing on the days when I was really like writing a lot, you know, I would work for three or four hours maybe on writing stuff and editing stuff and, and thinking, and I would just be creatively done for the day. I would not have had any energy to do anything else. So,
0: um,
1: but you know, I, I, I do think if you're interested in writing, start writing, you know, start, start blogging, um, start writing talks is another good thing. So if you're interested in, you know, becoming a speaker as well, like speaking at meetups, because the thing you need to learn how to communicate is fairly similar in both cases, right? You just need to learn how to take a complex concept and teach it to people in some way. Um, and, you know, that can be purely technical things. That can be things like I talk about, which is, you know, between technical and management. Um, but that, that honing that communication, and that is a really useful skill for whatever you decide to do with your career management, IC, data science, product manager, whatever that is, it's just a super valuable skill.
0: Yeah, the, the art of communication at the end of the day, I can I tell you, like, that's one of the biggest factors I always tell, you know, people fresh out of school is like, you know, look, whatever you choose to do, make sure you can communicate. And part of that's writing, part of that's speaking, part of that's training, uh, etc. Uh, I'm chuckling throughout because uh, I, I did the other way of writing a book, like you said, and it took me five years Uh, To get it
1: done.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the difference. (laughs) I I like to say I I I was ahead of my time, but thankfully I procrastinated. (laughs) One one question, just shifting gears a little bit, you know you've talked a lot about a lot of the good things in uh, across your career, you know, what are some of the downsides or maybe some of the challenging aspects of these roles just to kind of keep it real. Like you said, you've written this very pragmatic book. Uh, Bring that home for some of the the challenges you've faced personally.
1: I mean, you know, becoming working at startups is challenging. Yeah. Um, And I, I think it's true. Whatever role you're in, But it is extremely challenging in an executive role um, just because you tend to be working with people under extreme pressure who don't really know what they're doing. you know, if you're lucky, you're working with people who maybe have started a company once before. But yeah. most of the time, you know, just so much of the time you're working with people in some role or maybe all of the roles who this is their first time doing it. And it might also be your first time doing it, as it was for me. <laughs> yeah. And so you're on the one hand, you learn a lot. If you can hold on to that, you know, rocket ship or whatever it is, you can hold on and keep up, you will learn a lot, but nothing that no, no opportunity where you learn and, and grow that fast comes without a price. You know, you will, for me, I would say it was, it was, you know, a lot of work. I was, I was burned out by the end of it. Um, and I was not like, I did not admit to myself, I think that I was burned out, but you know, I took a year and a half off of like full-time work. And I think looking back, I had to do that because I was so burned out and I really needed to have a time to reset and and you know just not not have all of the sort of stress you know the stress and trauma of just all the hard parts of that job um really kind of making me uh frankly act not in the way that I really wanted to be able that I really wanted to be acting as a leader or a manager mm-hmm. um, and you know i do think that like yeah you know, i guess other other things that are real like you are going to disappoint people people are going to disappoint you in ways that, you know, it's hard. I, I say that uh, anytime somebody that I really care about quits on me, whether I could have done anything or not to prevent it, I lose a night's sleep. And I'm a very good sleeper. So for me to lose a night's sleep is, <laughs> is really traumatic, actually. Yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, but like I will just go over and over and over and over and over in my head. Well, what, what I, am I going to do without this person? What could I have done? it just, it sucks, you know, it hurts, you you take so much, uh, you just take so much emotional strength to do this job, and, and it's, it takes a lot out of you.
0: Especially when Uh, you, you may have recruited and, and brought, and hired that person, right? Oh yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: you know, you feel, and you feel, and like, especially when gosh, you know, I've had people send me like poison pen emails while I've been out on maternity leave, not this time, but, wow. uh, you know, about like all the things that they were quitting and here's all the things that I was doing wrong with the team, uh, wow. bye. <laughs> and wow. it's like, Oh, my, please never do that to someone. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like he, the person who wrote that had some points, but you know, it's like, you just have to take it. And yep. you know, a part of your job is just taking it and not reacting and not getting, you know, visibly angry, and and kind of just tamping down all of your all of your emotional reactions. And sometimes you'll be better at it than other times. And it's it hard, you know. That it, it, it there are some big downsides. It is it is stressful. It is yeah. definitely not like, you know, uh, just easy, easy growth, easy whatever, super fun. You're doing whatever you want. You know, it's, these are stressful, stressful jobs.
0: Yeah, no, it's so true. So that we don't end on a, a on a, on all the stress, you know, along the way, like what's, what's been the, the most surprising part or the most serendipitous or the happiest, uh, or however you want to quantify kind of, if you're summing up this, this career to date, you know, that, that you would want for somebody who wants to follow that role, right? Who, what, what advice, what, what little moments or, or the like, however you want to quantify that.
1: I mean, I guess, you know, I, honestly, I feel like the most serendipitous part of, for, for me, is actually goes all the way back to like going to work for Goldman and, and you know, staying in tech. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, gl- I'm so grateful I didn't quit tech when it was hard. Um, and I think that a lot of people in the early years of their career, uh, you, it's hard and you're young and like, you don't know, you're, you're figuring out life also. Like don't, most people do not know what they want to do with their life before they're like, you know, 28, 29, 30, <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, people, some people may seem that way, but I promise you having been that and managed a lot of people In those ages, like a lot of people, don't know what they're doing. How no matter how successful they are or how much they seem like they do, Um, but I'm really glad that I stuck it out, and I'm really glad that I got to work. The way that I stuck it out was working in a in a group that like aligned with the things that I actually am really good at, where I could learn a lot and Mm. work with people that were nice. Um, Those are just you know like looking for that. Look for that job where you like the people that you're working with, and you're learning. And you're being challenged, but, you know, not too much. That job is out there and it exists. Mm. Um, and you do not have to like quit tech to find that job. And, you know, this, this whole podcast that you're doing, right? Maybe that job is not software engineering. Maybe that job is product management or maybe that job is data science, right? Yeah. Um, it's going to be different for, for every different person. But I do th- personally think that like the tech industry, the technology in general, it's everywhere. It is, you know, you, it is in every company, there are opportunities to be technical and to make a big difference in a company by virtue of technical skills. And, you know, I, it's, that has, that is really like perhaps the luckiest uh, thing about my life is that I was interested in that as a kid. And I followed that particular interest down this career path. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did.
0: Wow. I I think that's just a great way to to wrap up, Camille. I, I, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, so much great advice in there. And and as, as I said, we'll link up the book, uh, The Manager's Path, in the show notes. Thank you again, Camille.
1: Thank you so much for having me.